there is no downside to building healthy soil. So I think it's one of those rare win, 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 net positive invest, and it will give you returns that are above and beyond what you ever could have imagined. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Emma. Hi. Hey, how's Plastic Free July going? Is there any progress? Setbacks? Well, I did find, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, dog poop bags. <laughs> and I really yeah. did find at a, at a local pet store some like paper dog poop picker upper things. But, you know, I can't really tell what they are. I think they're just like parchment paper cut up in squares. So I sort yeah. of feel like I was bamboozled into buying like this $10 box of like 50 sheets of parchment paper that I could have made myself. But interesting. Well, it gave you the idea. Now yeah. next time you can buy parchment paper and yeah. cut it up. Yeah. That's cool. You know, I've never heard of that. Okay. Well, I don't know if it's exactly parchment paper. I'll have to show it to you. But I think that's what it is. So last week when we were talking about this, we mentioned something that we said we were going to get back to. And that was our co-consumers, those that we share the space with, at least to some extent. And we also share consumer behaviors because you're buying things that come into the household. So, yeah. Yeah. So how much can we expect of another individual, even if we live with them or travel with them? Like we can't force them to buy exactly what we want them to or have our exact same values. Exactly. And I wanted to talk a little bit more about since it's so many of us, I'm sure. So what do you think is the best way to handle it when your co-consumer doesn't see it the same way you do or is not kind of as plugged into all this stuff? I don't think that saying that's bad for the environment over and over works or like this goes in landfill or whatever. I Just in general, <laughs> I've learned it's more helpful to be like more solution oriented. So hey, instead of throwing that away, here's this little compost bucket that I've already set up with its little bags in it. Just put it in this one instead of that one kind of thing. Yeah, I think the important thing is just to witness ourselves and how we approach others about this and also, you know, what we're telling ourselves about it. Because after all, someone you live with and, you know, you're shopping together or you're buying things in partnership, they are a part of your own consumption patterns. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, we're responsible for that. Yeah. And it's true that in the whole sustainability space, things are so much more nuanced 
then usually we would think it's so we want to say, oh, this is good. This is bad. This is right. This is wrong. But it's so much more nuanced than that. And that's something that really came out in this interview that we're sharing today with Amanda Cather, our friend and neighbor here in the Ag Reserve, who works for the Million Acre Challenge. The Million Acre Challenge is a nonprofit organization that helps Maryland farmers build soil health, increase farm profitability, and improve water quality, all while making farms resilient and active in the face of climate change. Their farmer-focused collaborative uses soil health science, economics, education, and incentives to achieve their mission. The challenge and goal is to achieve 1 million agricultural acres in Maryland using healthy soil techniques by 2030 while sharing best practices and making healthy soil connections throughout the Chesapeake watershed. Amanda's path has led her in a few different directions before leading her to her current position with the Million Acre Challenge. We invite you to listen as she tells us the story of how she got from a pre-med education to being a farmer in multiple settings and how now... As a professional advocate and facilitator of healthy soil development, she's helping farmers in Maryland achieve goals that will reap environmental benefits, not only statewide, but in the larger sense as helping to reclaim and establish regenerative practices as the new norm in our entire agricultural industry. We just really enjoy this conversation with Amanda, and we hope you do too, and that we all learned something today. I'm sure I certainly did when we chatted with Amanda. Enjoy. Hello, Amanda. We're so glad to have you here this morning. And I am uh, very glad to be here. Yeah, we're talking from just like literally across a couple of fields here. Amanda is our next door neighbor-ish with a lot of trees and fields in between. <laughs> and so it's fun. It's fun to have you on here and talk about things that have to do with our neighborhood in our area. Yeah. And so grateful for you guys being in this neighborhood in this area and helping bring your spirit to it. It's so we feel so lucky to be neighbors and to have you here in the Ag Reserve and in this community. It's really wonderful. Well, same here. Yay. Yeah. Love Fest. Yeah. <laughs> so Amanda, can you start out by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing now. Well, I grew up in Southern Maryland. We moved there in 1979 when I was five. And my dad runs a marina down there. Then my parents still live there and my whole family still lives in Maryland. But I moved away when I was 16 and went to high school out in New Mexico. And that was a huge change for me. And then went to college in Boston and I was a pre-med there. I had a job at a clinic for malnourished children in Boston, and that's where my interest in food and food access really crystallized. And at the same time, I was studying history of science. That was my concentration. And we were doing a lot of reading of Thoreau and, you know, trips out into the countryside around Boston. And I just was so in love with the small farms that were out there. I was a kid that never wanted to work in the garden when I was little, <laughs> didn't want to be uncomfortable. I always wanted a job that would be inside and I didn't have to work on the weekends and I didn't have to do physical labor like I saw my dad doing. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I thought that being a doctor would do that for me, but I just got pulled in and ended up doing, I was just so surprised as a 19 year old at the lack of access to affordable, healthy food that the families that were coming to our clinic were experiencing. 
And the combination of that, like right next to these beautiful little farms that were producing that incredible healthy food and ended up writing my senior thesis on the Land Institute out in Kansas, who are still really at the forefront of doing incredible, innovative research on ways that annual crops can be kind of reconverted to perennials and improve soil health. And no idea at the time that everything would kind of come back to that, but wrote my thesis on on the Land Institute. And while I was out there, I said, I wish there were someone doing agriculture like you are back where, you know, in the New England area. And they were like, there are, go back there and find them and do it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I will. And it just set me on a journey. I did urban agriculture for a few years and loved that, worked at community gardens and also urban agriculture at a, a shelter for women, pregnant and parenting women. And then went, did my first internship on a farm outside Boston and just fell in love. I fell in love with the animals. I fell in love with the tractor. I fell in love with, you know, the day-to-day work and have been doing it ever since. Went back to urban agriculture after that for a couple of years, farmed in Boulder, Colorado for a couple of years where my son was born and then moved back to Boston and managed a community farm for a decade before we moved back to Maryland and started our own farm which was Plow and Stars Farm. We ran a diversified meat and veg CSA and eggs for about five years. And then I was realizing a couple of things. One was we were told by our wonderful farm consultant, Ellen Polishuk, that (laughs) the scale we were at was not sustainable and we'd either have to get significantly larger or we were never going to be profitable. And also my body was really starting to tell me that day-to-day veg farming was hard on it. And also that I was feeling so head down in the day-to-day work of the farm, which I loved, that I didn't feel connected to the bigger issues of farming and sustainable agriculture that I cared about a lot. And every day, Jonah, my son, was coming home from high school and saying, what are we doing to solve the climate crisis? How are we benefiting the world? So those, that kind of confluence of three things led me to start looking around for something else we could do um, while maintaining some of our agriculture. And I found this position with the Million Acre Challenge and that just kind of happened to come up and I applied and was fortunate enough to have this position that I started in December of 2019. And we've scaled back our agriculture on the farm we would now raise lamb, pastured lamb and pastured poultry. And those are our main agricultural production that we do now. We don't do veg for sale anymore, but we do obviously do it for ourselves because how can you not? <laughs> and keep growing, you know, herbs and flowers and all the things that are fun, but still maintain this pastured lamb production and pastured poultry and work with the Million Acre Challenge. So tell us about the Million Acre Challenge and what that is. The perfect segue. (laughs) So the Million Acre Challenge is a collaborative effort to improve soil health and regenerative agriculture on 1 million acres in Maryland and help catalyze change across the region by 2030. So it's a kind of a a rallying cry. So we challenge all kinds of producers, uh, row crop farmers, livestock farmers, diversified veg farmers, whatever they are, whoever they are, whatever they're producing to start where they are and take the next right step for whatever their operation is to improve the health of their soils. And we start there because we know that healthy soils are the foundation of regenerative agriculture. And you can't have regenerative agriculture without healthy soils. And we define regenerative agriculture. This is a way that uh, Guidelight and Patagonia defined it in a really awesome report that they put out last year. 
a system of land stewardship rooted in centuries-old indigenous wisdom that provides healthy, nutrient-rich food for all people while continuously restoring and nourishing the ecological, social, and cultural systems unique to every place. So that's one of the best definitions of regenerative agriculture that I've read. And we also know that in addition to kind of being the foundation of regenerative agriculture, healthy soils have a lot of other co-benefits, including increased profitability and resilience for the farmer, ecological improvements and ecosystem services that can include biodiversity, reduced erosion, water quality improvement, and potentially reductions and maybe even sequestration of greenhouse gases and carbon. So that's kind of the goal of our project, the Million Acre Challenge working on that. That's awesome. So do you go and just visit all the farmers in the area and or the ones that will let you visit them? What is your strategy in reaching all the farmers in the area? And I imagine there's a whole continuum of where they are. Either you have to introduce them to the concepts or they've been doing it for a while. So talk about that a little bit. How do you spread your net here? Yeah, well, and especially hard this past year when we really like couldn't go visit any farms. We couldn't connect in person with farmers because the COVID restrictions made that impossible. So I first want to kind of say that it's important to note that the Million Acre Challenge isn't one organization because that this issue of soil health and regenerative agriculture is way bigger than any one organization or one farm or one person. So we have six founding partners. We got a grant from the Town Creek Foundation as it was ending. And these six founding partners got this grant together. And it's the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Future Harvest, Fair Farms, which is a project of Waterkeepers Chesapeake, the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and the public relations firm, the Hatcher Group. And those are the founding partners, but we built partnerships with farmers and farm service organizations across the state. So that's part of what we've been doing this past year is really building relationships. So we have great relationships with the Department of Agriculture in Maryland, the conservation districts in Maryland, with the Pennsylvania Soil Health Coalition, the Virginia Soil Health Coalition, and we also have an amazing board of soil stewards. Those are our guiding farmers that kind of, they're soil health leaders from across the state, and they're really helping us guide and shape the Million Acre Challenge and determine what does it mean to make progress in healthy soils? You know, How do we communicate with farmers? What are the best ways? Because we try to be farmer-driven and farmer-centered, we're looking at it from five different angles, and those are our five different working groups. So we have these five different working groups, each of which is trying to address this kind of complex ecological issue from a different point of view. So we have our science working group, and that engages farmers in um, PASA Sustainable Agriculture's Soil Health Benchmark Study. And that study connects soil health indicators to farm management practices so that farmers can see directly how the management system they're using on their farm is impacting the health of their soil in kind of the chemical way, the biological way, and the physical way. And PASA also designs these beautiful marketing materials that kind of help farmers use their soil health commitment to market their products. So that's our science working group. And we also do research with University of Maryland on the Organic Grains Transition Project. And Ray, Dr. Ray Weil is running that project that's kind of looking at the economic and environmental impacts of different ways of transitioning to organic for grain farmers, because that's obviously the largest group of farmers in Maryland. Farmer engagement is another way, and that's literally when we go and talk to farmers. We focus on helping farmers connect with each other too, because we know that farmers learn best from each other. 
And so that's kind of setting up farmer networks, doing demonstration days on farms, bringing in speakers and educational events that farmers might want, and really focusing on what do you want to learn? How do you want to learn it? For us, it's critical that we center farmer voices, that we lift up the expertise that farmers already have, because we have some tremendous farmers in the state, and make sure that their experience and wisdom and their needs and challenges are the drivers for everything we do. So we've been, over the past year, just in a process of finding out what do they need, what do they want to learn, how do they want to learn it, what's best, how do we jump into action in this upcoming year. So we also have the business case working group, and that working group is looking at the profitability of every, you know, some of these healthy soils practices. And that's harder than you'd think because, you know, agriculture is really, there's no result that's really independent of the whole since it's an ecological system and you have to look at it in a holistic way. So it's really difficult to tease apart some of these specific costs and benefits of each soil health practice and, you know, try to demonstrate to people how each one might contribute to their profitability. The American Farmland Trust and Soil Health Institute have done this really well with some row crop farms out in the Midwest, particularly looking at tillage and cover crops. And we're trying to look and see if we can expand that list of practices and also incorporate livestock and diversified veg in that as well. So that's not easy, but it's obviously really important as we are examining kind of when farmers can expect to see a return if they're implementing this regenerative production system and ways that we could support them. We generally, the taxpayers, the government, you know, corporations that are buying the products, how can we support them through a transitional period until they might start to see returns in terms of profitability? And obviously there's other things that are emerging. There's ecosystem services markets and how, what role they can play in farm profitability and how you ensure that that kind of a market's going to benefit small and mid-sized farms and early adopters and folks that are really out there innovating, as well as farmers who might make a change today or tomorrow and start on that pathway. So there's a lot to think about. And then there are a bunch of benefits that you can't even put a price tag on. If you're writing, you know, doing a partial budget analysis, how do you value biodiversity? How do you, you know, how do we account for that as a society? So we've been externalizing the risk to our environment. And, you know, a lot of the costs of farming have been externalized for decades. So business case, we have to think about ways that crop insurance and subsidies can be reformed in order to really ensure that those systems are rewarding good stewardship. So there's a lot going on, (laughs) a lot going on there with the business case. Policy is another way that we look at this. And in that working group, we're engaging state lawmakers to listen to farmer voices about the importance of soil health as a framework for agricultural conservation. I think in Maryland and the Chesapeake region for decades, we've rightly really focused on water quality as our framework overall. But soil health, because it incorporates water quality as well as a lot of other factors, is as we kind of get towards the end of some of our WIP goals in 2025, we can use soil health as a way of thinking about how to maintain those water quality improvements and go beyond them into this larger frame of regenerative agriculture. So that's our goal with policy. We're planning a virtual legislative tour this summer that's uh, focused on our board of soil stewards and getting farmer voices out there and really hoping to find some consistent funding for our state's healthy soils program. So we have a, we're lucky in Maryland to have a soil health program that was established in 2017, but it's not funded. So that everybody that's working on it is, is kind of always scrambling to find money for it. So we're hoping to find some consistent funding for that. 
and also working through the state soil health committee, which has farmers and nonprofits and ag retailers and extension. And that's all at the Department of Agriculture level, trying to figure out ways that farmers can be incentivized to work on improving their soils for all the reasons we've talked about before. And then we have one more, <laughs> which is public outreach. Our public outreach working group is all about raising the profile of healthy soils across the state and across the region and kind of creating demand. So we want to create demand among farmers for technical assistance, for incentives, you know, building farmer voices to help create demand and building consumer awareness and consumer demand for products grown in healthy soils to help incentivize farmers and also policymakers. So raising the profile there. So those are kind of the five ways that we're beginning to work. And it really has taken us a year to kind of get those up and running, all of those working groups. And our, my hope is that this year we'll really be off to the races. I have a personal question. Do you feel like the point that you made earlier as to why you chose to pause the veg CSA operation and the meat, you were looking for this other way to make an impact. Do you feel like your work with the Million Acre Challenge has stepped into that? And do you feel like you're doing it? I feel really lucky to be involved in these conversations. For me, this it's like to be connected to all of these issues that are so powerful and important. Yeah, I feel really lucky. It's also super challenging because it's a really big issue and it's a big issue that touches on all of the biggest issues that we face as a society and all the biggest issues that our agriculture faces, you know, equity and infrastructure and structural, you know, the structures that perpetuate this kind of industrial model. And how do we make these small changes that can really add up to and create that tsunami of good? So it does feel positive. There are days when I'm just like, oh my goodness, this this question is so big and has so many sides and we're constantly relearning. But yeah, it's been a benefit overall. So as you were talking, a few questions just popped into my mind on these different working groups. First of all, are you associated with any particular working group or are you working in a capacity that kind of deals with all of them? Yeah, where I kind of envision it, it's like a wheel, you know, and each of these mm-hmm. working groups is a spoke on the wheel and I'm at the center. So just trying to coordinate, make sure that none of the working groups is siloed and that they're all talking to each other and that their work is complementing one another and that we're bringing in the right partners and making the right relationships and trying to make sure that our work is in the context of all the other work that's happening in the state and in the region and in the country. So yeah, I'm kind of the center. Okay. Wow. That is a big job. I can see how you think, well, this is big, (laughs) but (laughs) it just, I mean, I know, you know, this from day to day, just bringing these things out in the open, giving them air, giving them conversation and raising questions in people's minds and awareness. And all this stuff is important because, you know, for so long, these issues have been like literally buried. Are we to the point yet where, where farmers that are trying to make the transition and have a profitable business are supported by the government in the same way, well, certainly not yet, but possibly going to be supported in the same way by all the farmers that have been practicing what we call industrial agriculture over the last several decades and have been, you know, receiving subsidies for their work to make it happen. That is really the heart of the question. And because so much of that happens at the federal level, you know, our project is mostly state and regional focused, but those federal crop insurance subsidies incentives really need to shift. 
in order to make that law. Because you're right that that's the system in which our agriculture has kind of become a system that's focused solely on efficiency, right? And not on the balance of efficiency and resilience, which is really what we need in order to create this kind of new form, quote unquote, new. It's obviously really lifting up some very old traditions and methods and partnering them with this more holistic approach to agricultural science. But it's huge that you can't overestimate. And and we really are seeing, even in the last few months, I think a focus at USDA in trying to make that shift and an understanding that there are structural reasons why there is a brittleness in our agricultural system and what some of the things that need to change. And I hope we just got a federal grant from USDA. It's a partnership project called the Regional Conservation Partnership Project, where we'll be able to provide funds to farmers to start making some of this transition ourselves. And we're really looking forward to working with NRCS, USDA on this, because we do feel like there's an awareness there that it's important to incentivize this kind of systems approach and then this kind of soil health focused practice. But there's obviously more that needs to happen. Right now, we're in the process of drafting some comments on infrastructure change for agriculture. And obviously, all of that it's uh, processing for meat, it's processing for regional processing for like oil seeds and small grains. And so if you want farmers to diversify their rotations, for example, on the Eastern shore, it would be great to integrate canola. It would be great to integrate sunflowers, but there's no processing facility for that to turn it into oil. So we need that, that's, that's infrastructure. I argue that insurance and finance is also agricultural infrastructure. And so transforming that is also really important. Aggregation and storage. So allowing small and mid-scale farmers to buy into some of these larger wholesale distribution markets so that institutional buyers have access to some of the more regeneratively produced products. And then, yeah, providing those incentives so that the transition can happen. So that because farmers are so squeezed financially, that funding the transition is really important. So if we could subsidize that, you know, instead of continuing to subsidize a form of agriculture that is brittle, right? It's just not resilient. And you can argue that it's not efficient at producing what we need, as we saw during the pandemic. It's efficient in one way and another way, not very efficient. So I think there is an awareness there. How we all put some pressure on that system is really important. And we can do that as consumers every single day. So yeah, yeah, I, it's you're closer than we have been, Mary, I think. Well, looking back over the history of agriculture in the country, the transition and the shift in the direction that we have been practicing over the past 30, 40 years, 50 or whatever, happened very so quickly. Mm-hmm. And under yeah. what? One administration. You think you could say that? Yeah, it happened really quickly. It happened really fast. So, you know, why can't it shift back? And what I've been wondering is in light of the pandemic and the worldwide health crisis, has there been more awareness of the nutritional compromises that are documented as a result of the industrial food growing methods and how perhaps that has had an impact on our public health? Now, it might not be a super popular thing to talk about, but I just think it must be so relevant right now. You know, and the fact that you, know, you were talking about the one of the focus groups 
shifting to organic grains. And as you know, the grains are one of the crops that are most dependent on glyphosate input mm-hmm. roundup. Mm-hmm. And glyphosate is a patented antibiotic. And it's pretty common knowledge now that antibiotics are, you know, detrimental to our immune system. So, wow. I mean, is there anybody out there connecting those dots? Yeah. Yeah, there are. There are a lot of folks working on, I think there's a kind of general realization across the board that nutritional quality of agriculture crops has declined, right? And the varying reasons for that, there are folks looking into the connection between healthy soils and healthy crops and whether crops that are grown in biologically active, you know, well-nourished soils are healthier for people. And of course, there's kind of our, the balance of what we eat. And that's a whole other thing, you know. But yeah, there are folks that are working on it. I think that that work has just begun and the connections between soil health and human health are really important and super powerful and will play a big role in promoting consumer demand for, you know, understanding that it is really important to support this kind of agriculture because it doesn't just have ecological impacts, but also human health, as you said, and public health impacts. So yeah, people are working on it. And there is a lot of science still to do. And we're lucky to have like USDA, FFAR, the Food Foundation for Food and Agriculture Research. They do a lot of kind of technology focused research, but also this kind of research that we all want to see more of. Yeah. Well, the whole microbiome research is a fairly yes. recent thing. Yeah. And they are learning so much all the time. Yes. And like, whereas 20 years ago, these connections might not have even been out yet, mm-hmm. even in the scientific world. So, mm-hmm. or at least in a very limited scale. Mm-hmm. So it's really fascinating how fast things are happening. Yeah. And the more people I think understand, or we think their own connection with the soil. I mean, we tend to think of this mm-hmm. soil, you know, we sort of become very separated from it. Well, there's the soil, the soil is important. But to understand that the soil is us and we are the soil, we're so connected, we cannot disconnect from the health Mm -hmm. of the soil as humans. So I just think that's a real basic understanding that growing. And the more that grows, the more people will be tuning into the good dirt (laughs) (laughs) and saying, hey, where was my food grown? How is it grown? Maybe even someday there'll be a way of like even measuring the nutritional content of where things come from. It's starting to happen. Really? Yeah, there's some cool organizations that are doing, there's a a really neat project out in the High Plains that is called the Farms Project, and they are doing some nutritional analysis as well as farmer networking and soil health, you know, analysis. And that's a great holistic project that I really respect a ton and think the world of those guys are doing amazing work and there, yeah, that stuff is starting to happen. And there's some really neat Northern California project that is creating a dashboard where you can look at a farm's profile and kind of see the different pieces of work that they're doing in soil health and water quality and equity. And they've created a survey that rates the farmers on all of these things. So you could really, I mean, that's a lot of work on the consumer end, but it is a beautiful presentation of the efforts that these farms are putting into this kind of work. And I mean, I, hopefully we can end up with something similar. We're working on it. Do you know the name of that operation? Yeah, they're called Regen One. And they're a a Google funded accelerator from the lexicon of sustainability. Fascinating. 
That's amazing. Just think what would happen if that became something that was included on food labels. Yes. Well, I think that's their goal. Yeah. That get the consumer's attention. Just think back Mm -hmm. when, you know, I remember you're probably too young, but I remember a time when the nutritional value was not on the label. And then that happened and the level awareness took a really big leap at like, what are you eating? Mm -hmm. And the guidelines since then might have changed a lot, but at least it introduced a kind of consciousness about, you know, that your food comes from somewhere. A lot of things have been done to it and what's in it. And these are things you want to know. And here it is right on the label. (laughs) That was huge for, I think, society. So here we go again. Maybe this will be the next level of labeling. That is really exciting. Yeah. And I could see if that happened, wow, consumer demand would skyrocket. I hope so. I predict it would because what if you could literally compare you know, the nutritional value of, you know, the carrots that are sitting over there in the grocery store with something that was in, you know, your, a smaller market or a farmer's market or your CSA, not Mm -hmm. that CSAs would be able to do that. I don't know. Maybe someday they could. Yeah. You never know. (laughs) What kind of technology might come out? I mean, there are people that are trying to develop these handheld you know, devices that can measure nutritional quality. I don't know how far advanced the science actually is on that. That sounds like the Jetsons. (laughs) The Bionutrient Food Association, the Real Food, I think they're called Real Food Project. They're trying that. I, again, I don't know how the science is, but that is something that they're working on. Well, the fact that it's even out there, I mean, I have faith that they'll figure it out. Humans are in just so ingenious. And like, as I've said before, we're always out solving problems and getting to the next level. And sometimes we create problems that we have to create (laughs) solutions for, but (laughs) we're always pushing that envelope and as to what's needed and, you know, what's going to make life better. I have great faith in the human race for figuring these things out. And that is exciting. I think that's so cool. Uh, Amanda, besides what I think are probably the obvious, I'm sure all of these efforts could use some more funding and could use some more public awareness. What do you think are maybe some of the more nuanced challenges, like some of the biggest ones that maybe even you didn't know or weren't aware of before you started on this project that have kind of surprised you? Well, I think the extent to which equity is such a key piece of this, you know, of agriculture in general and a key component of the way that this movement needs to define itself and set its goals uh, has, I guess it, it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did take me a little bit by surprise. Yeah. And it is, you know, in Maryland, 96% of farmers are white and across the United States, 98% of farmland is owned by white farmers. And that is because of historical systemic disenfranchisement. And it is something we need to work on. It is something this movement needs to address. It cannot be ignored. And it cannot be ignored that there are, you know, too often happens that white progressives discover something, a technique or a form of agriculture, or like, look, it's new, we discovered it. And of course, no, you didn't discover it. It's been around for centuries. It's been maintained lovingly by POC farmers and by limited resource farmers for, you know, generations, as the rest of us turn toward this other model. And it's a coming home. So acknowledging all of that and figuring out how to build a movement that incorporates, you know, you're, you're working on soil health, 
but you can't avoid access to land, access to capital, all of the historic injustice that has taken place and the historic knowledge that has been maintained. So all of that, the ways in which that all is reflected in the regenerative production movement, I think is really important and something we struggle with and need to continue to struggle with and amplify BIPOC voices and work to redress some of these historic injustices. Yeah, it's so interesting how land access and also, and that you said it too, capital access, mm-hmm. but like the resources and the space to do the necessary work, to me, it's like the root of the systemic issues and especially particularly in this country, but it's amazing what could happen if those, like <laughs> we start there and fix it there, although that's a big pill to swallow, Yeah, but it's amazing how it's all so connected to that. I really love that idea, that kind of like land reparations idea of healing from the ground up. Yeah. And then the other piece that has surprised me is, you know, I think from a consumer point of view, sometimes it's really easy to say, well, my garden has beautiful black earth that's full of earthworms. Why can't farmers just make that happen? And again, it reflects a lack of awareness of what you were talking about, Mary, which is the entire structure of agriculture that we have in place that ties farmers into a system that makes it a little bit harder for them to make a transition than it is for us in our gardens, right? It's so easy to just be like, my garden looks great. Why can't that farmer do that? And recognizing the role that we each play. So I know I think we all are aware that like our individual actions don't necessarily impact climate change, you know, in in the way that we might hope that there are structural issues that need to be, we need to change, but that we can have an impact in our purchasing choices every day. And that every time we go to the store and say, you know, I want to look for the cheapest, the best bargain, if we can choose something different, you know, every time we buy the cheapest thing, we're buying into that system as well. It's the ways in which we can impact it uh, every single day as consumers, every single day in our advocacy. I think it's important to recognize that, that it goes beyond putting compost on your garden. That's a great thing to do, but that there are other steps you can take too. And you guys emphasize that all the time about how important supply chains are, how important purchasing is. I'm fascinated by the macroeconomics of it. Like, why is the more natural, less input, more organic way nature designed was way to do things. Why is that more expensive than the chemical input equipment necessary? And how is the access so twisted? I think ultimately it's not, but it's getting through the transition period where because we, so all the research that we've done has been to produce crops that are very, very productive in this system. So if you try to like put those same crops on a system that's biologically based, they're not going to do well because that's not what they've been bred to do. So we need to do a lot more research into crops that function better in systems that are biologically active. And really thinking about the balance sheet, I think it all comes down to the balance sheet. So are you as a farmer, you know, okay, if you're going to till the soil, which a lot of us have to do as organic farmers and because that's how we manage weeds. How are you balancing that out? Are you growing a cover crop? Are you adding compost? You know, what's the balance? If you're using glyphosate, which you know has impacts, how are you balancing that out? What are you doing on the positive side of the balance sheet in order to make sure that what you are doing is a net positive? And I really believe that we will find 
again, so many, I think part of the macroeconomics of it, Emma, are that some of the negative impacts are externalized. So we are bearing them as taxpayers. And so we don't see them in the equation. So if we start to incorporate those, we will see that this ecologically based system is more economically sustainable in the long run. But we have to get there and we have to help farmers transition to there. It's that true cost idea, right? We don't see those true costs. Yeah, we don't. And you can't get there right away. Like you can't go from lots of inputs to no inputs. There has to be a transition stage where like maybe you have to put a biological inputs into your soil. Maybe you have to do a lot and those costs don't necessarily go down, but they shift until your system is really functioning well. Like it's not really realistic to get on a soil that's been degraded for years and be like, now I'm gonna go totally no-till and organic and I'm not gonna have to put anything on there. That's not what happens. We really have to rebuild and regenerate and then things start to function. That feedback loop starts to happen. So I think it's a process. Well, circling back a minute to what you were saying about having an individual impact, it's so interesting how we're always coming across, and almost the whole time we've been doing Lady Farmer, we've been making the parallel between clothing and food and all of these issues. And food is a little bit ahead of clothing, or I'd say a decade ahead of clothing and organic (laughs) food and people being looking for it and you know, people dealing with the sticker shock of it and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But in terms of having an individual impact, we had a really good conversation on the podcast a few weeks ago with Elizabeth Klein, who is an environmental fashion activist and is very important voice in the fashion revolution and other movements that have to do with the fashion industry. But you mentioned, you know, you can have the consciousness and the awareness of what needs to be done. And you can do this in your own garden. You can compost your garden, grow earthworms, and you have this really happy little place. That is great and very important. And But go to go to the next level of making conscious decisions about your purchases, which system are you going to support? You said that very well. And, and we do, we talk about that all the time. Your individual purchases are very important. You create consumer demand. This is how policy shifts. This is how laws are changed. This is how it's done. However, there's yet another level that even goes beyond this. And this is employing your own voice and activism and getting out there and signing petitions and talking about it. Get out there, get involved in the issues, what's going on in your community on this score and making a difference in your actions. So you have you have your awareness you have your consumer decisions and you have your action, your outward action. So the more people we have employing all three of those components, the more we're going to see real shift towards something healthier. That's a great point, mom. And Amanda, how can citizens be involved besides just their purchasing decisions to be more active and out loud and have their voices heard? What does that lobbying look like? Are there any specific things you can point to and whether or not they're in this region, obviously you probably know about a lot in Maryland, but are there general places to look or? You know, Shelly Pingree's Agricultural Resilience Act is a really good comprehensive at the federal level. I think it's been reintroduced and it's great. I really think that's something we can all get behind. It, It has a lot of different elements of regenerative production and distribution. It represents some of the best of what we can be So getting behind that would be positive. I don't know how far that will get, but it is a very good 
Act. I think it's the Agricultural Resilience Act. It's it's sponsored by Shelley Pinkery of Maine. You know, looking for that place in your state where soil health is lifted up. So like I said, Virginia, Pennsylvania, many states, New Mexico has an incredible healthy soils program. Fair Farms has a healthy soils pledge that consumers can take, and they really do focus on ways that consumers can get involved in activism around healthy soils and and sustainable agriculture, particularly as it relates to the Chesapeake region. I think that starting the conversation with farmers that you support about what are you doing, how are you promoting healthy soils on your farm, and then being open to the answers, realizing that the answers can look really different than you might expect, and that people's, you know, that's the thing about regenerative agriculture. Organic agriculture is pretty well defined at this point because of the National Organic Program. Regenerative agriculture is very broad and still a little bit unsettled. And people's definitions for their own, and that's one of the really positive things about it and one of the really amorphous things about it too, but being open to listening to the wisdom that farmers have about how that looks on their individual operation. It might not look like what you think. If you've seen the film Big Little Farm and you have the anticipation that that's what it looks like for every farm, you might be disappointed it's important to recognize that this is going to look different on every farm and where every farm is starting from and where they are the next right thing. You know, this is that Brene Brown phrase that I love doing the next right thing. And that's what we all would like everybody to do. And how can you support them? How do you support your farmers in taking the next right step and doing the next right thing, realizing that because their finances are so tight you know, not everybody can get to that level three. So we in the Million Acre Challenge, we have these tiers of regeneration and it's a stepwise journey to soil health that farmers can follow. And we start with foundation tier and that's where you're interested in and committed to this way of farming and you're educating yourself and you're putting practices on the ground. And that's a really great place to be. And that's where most of us are. That's where I am. You know, getting to the next level is about starting to transform your production, really starting to put systems in place, starting to think about how your finances are impacted, starting to think about how you can teach other people. And being at that third tier is where your whole mindset is shifted. You're a holistic thinker. You're a systems thinker. You're mentoring other people. You're aware of how the finances of your farm are impacted by ecology and vice versa. And that's the level that we can only aspire to be. But the journey is really important. And supporting farmers on the journey, I think, is what consumers can do every day. I'm so glad you said that because at the most basic level of, you know, someone's journey into this topic, and they might go to a farmer and say, are you an organic farmer? Right. And the guy or a woman would say, well, no, because, and then that consumer's automatically just turned off when really what they mean is they don't have the USDA certification because it's truly expensive and there's a million hoops to go through and it's a lot of paperwork and they're a very small operation and they're small staffed and they literally can't afford to do it. But that doesn't mean they're not out there doing the work and maybe they're even going beyond what's laid out as the guidelines for organic farming. There's a lot about true certified organic farming that could be improved on that people don't really realize. I mean, there's not just one way of doing this. Would you say that? Would you agree with that? 
I absolutely agree with it. I think there are multiple pathways. They're going to look different, whether you're, you know, if you're a livestock producer, it's going to look different. If you're a diversified vegetable producer, it's going to look different if you're a row crop producer. And again, it's all about looking at the balance sheet and ending up with a regenerative balance sheet rather than a degrading balance sheet. And the farmer has to be curious about what is the next step. And the consumer has to be curious about what steps are you taking and starting this, you know, it's a million mile journey <laughs> It's yeah. with that single step of thinking about your soil health holistically and tugging on that and seeing all the things that it's connected to, right? It is infrastructure, it's processing, it's aggregation, it's finance, it's insurance, and it literally starts with the soil. So I think that's really important for everyone to be aware of. Yeah. In other words, all of you listening, don't get too hung up on labels. Before you get hung up on labels, go engage in conversation with the farmers. That's a very powerful position to put yourself into in terms of your own outward action in this regard. Mm -hmm. And asking the first best question to ask is, how's your season going? You know, rather try it, you know, rather than saying, are you organic or, you know, <laughs> how's your season going? You know, what are your challenges? What are your barriers? What's been hard? What's been great? Listen. And you will start to hear, if you're open and curious, you'll start to hear a lot about the ways farmers produce. They love to talk about it to someone they think is going to listen. That's such a good point. Such a good point. Rather than walking up and confronting, tell me what you do so I can decide whether or not I want to buy your stuff. <laughs> and this right and wrong thing, looking for the check boxes and the binary yes. black, white, right, wrong. It's way more nuanced than that. Yeah. yeah, it is. And recognizing the ways in which our structural, you know, our system is set up to reward efficiency and industrial models over an ecological model, which is really what we all want, because this is an ecological process we're dealing with. Yeah. So that should be the way we're looking at it. It just hasn't been, but we can get there. Amanda, the next question is something we ask all of our guests. And in your case, it might seem rather redundant. But we're curious to know what you might have to add to this question is, what does the good dirt mean to you, either literally or metaphorically? Well, like I said, I think that I really feel like that the good dirt is the foundation of everything. I think we all know that a truly regenerative food system doesn't stop with building healthy soils. So we are looking at all the things we just talked about, worker equity, animal welfare, community food sovereignty, access to markets, aggregation and processing, uh, that so much access to land, but it all is rooted in this good dirt. And that's the amazing thing about healthy soil, good dirt, those things are synonymous in my mind, is that it's one of the few things that is truly a good, a universal good, that you know there are benefits to your bottom line. There are benefits to your ecosystem. There are benefits to the climate. And so it really is, there is no downside to building healthy soil. So I think it's one of those rare win, 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 net positive invest, and it will give you returns that are above and beyond what you ever could have imagined. That's so true. It's also so nonpartisan and apolitical. I love all of that about it. Well, it should be. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it's really true. And that is why, you know, there's so much about this 
that can be touchy for folks because I think it's easy for farmers to feel really defensive. If they feel they can feel embattled really easily, they can feel challenged, they can feel like their way of doing things that there is under question. And the nice thing about soil health is that we don't have to be judgmental about it. So we can all work towards it. There's things we can all do. There are things organic farmers can do to make their soil healthier. There are things conventional farmers can do to make their soil healthier. You don't have to fit into one box or another. We can all work on it. What would you like to leave our audience with about yourself and the work that you do? One thing that's kind of fun is that by being a pastured livestock producer, I get to see the change happening on the ground. So we have a field on our farm that hadn't been grazed for a while and hadn't been mowed regularly. And it was kind of getting a little bit wild and invasives were starting to creep in. And we grazed it pretty heavily last year with the sheep. And this spring already, after just one season, it really is starting to look better. It's very diverse, but the invasives are reduced and there's just so much life there. And the soil looks beautiful and the vegetation is starting to fill in. And so I know that that's just the beginning, but it's amazing to watch when we're able to put these principles in practice on our own farm, the fast pace at which we start to see change, which is really satisfying. <laughs> and we still have a long way to go. As I said, I feel like we are still very much beginners. And it's part of the joy of the work is just the constant learning and the constant beginner's mind and curiosity about what if I do this, what happens? Oh, I did this and that worked. And so what if it happens? Oh, I did that. That really didn't work. You know, what could I try next time that would be better? But the ability to take all of these big picture questions that we think about every day and distill them down to what are my tasks on the farm? I feel incredibly fortunate to be able to engage in this at both of those levels. And, you know, some days it's very challenging and some days I feel like the luckiest person in the world just to be able to have that much coherence. <laughs> of course, it does make me a little single-minded, so I can't grow <laughs> anything that's not in a row. I'm still learning. <laughs> well, I love it that you said that because we hear this over and over again, how quickly mother nature will do her work. Mm -hmm. I think Am I safe in saying it's the human beings that are pokey? <laughs> yeah. If you just cooperate with nature and we get beyond all our stuff about why we can do this or that or not, things do happen quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really important, though, I think, to recognize that folks need help to take these steps and that it's really important guidance. to have, yeah, mentors, guidance, you know, what we call in NRCS speak technical assistance. And we need to make sure that that's in place for people, that they have places to go. I mean, your podcast is a great example, but that putting the information out there so that people know what steps to take and feel like they're supported and part of a community in doing this work. And I think that's why your work is important. Oh, thank you so much. It's like most of the books might say, this is what you're supposed to do, but hey, somebody else has tried this and found that it works very, very well. Yeah, and maybe it's not the best for where you are or what your situation is. Yeah, yeah, and if you have somebody you can call up or a community of people you can go to and say, I tried this, this happened, now what? I mean, you can't beat that. That's what really is the best. As you say, a curious approach, an environment of exploration room to do that, permission to do that, and support in doing that. All these things are part of it. So anyway, this was great, Amanda. This was wonderful. Now, 
Thanks for being with us today, Amanda. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the opportunity. Grateful for the chance to talk to you guys. Thank you so much, Amanda, for that informative and illuminating discussion about all the different ways of looking at regenerative agriculture and soil health and farming. And if you're a new listener, welcome. We're here every Friday. We are Lady Farmer on Instagram is we are Lady Farmer on the internet, www.ladyfarmer.com. We also have an online membership community, the Almanac. You can sign up to get updates about that. And we love being here every Friday and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, everyone. you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well we're so excited to offer the almanac it's our private slow living community network where we share workshops activities articles essays recipes and so much more that align with our community's sustainable slow seasonal way of living as a member you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow living enthusiasts as well as Almanac exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including the Slow Living Retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac or three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com community.